Father, we thank you for the blessing of the church. You've saved us and made us a part of your family, the bride of Christ, the building of God. It is the church. You call us to assemble together, to proclaim your praises, to be taught and instructed by your word. It is all meant to strengthen our God-given faith so that we can stand in difficult times, that we can make biblical decisions when the world presses in on us, so we can find fellowship and joy with like-minded people. Lord, such a blessing is realized every time we come together. And it is all possible because your Son came and purchased us with his blood. And so it loosens our tongues, men and women who would not sing like this in any other setting, sing at the top of their lungs. They express joy and gratitude towards you, Lord, because you've changed our lives. There's fellowship among us, Lord. We embrace one another. We love one another. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. All this is because you put us in your family. And we thank you for this. And Lord, you're not done with us. Your goal is to increase our faith. Not only a God-given faith for salvation, but a God-given faith to daily walk with you. And Lord, we need that. And we're here today, Lord, that you would increase our faith. and Cause us to stand for you, Lord, when the going is tough. The faithful keep going. And so we need your strength, Lord. And we ask today as you teach us from your word that we would be stronger men and women, boys and girls who have stood in your, your truth, Lord, this morning. And as we leave these doors, may we go out and live for you. Thank you for gathering us today and humbled at this opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. We will be covering 14 through 29 that John read for us. I told John, tell the congregation, you've been recently engaged. He didn't do it. He got scared. Uh, congratulations, John and Deborah. Praise the Lord for that. I entitled the sermon, A God-Given Faith and a Life of Prayer. They are indebitably tied together. You cannot have a God-given faith and not one who prays. Our faith is, is often understood in our prayer life of who we are dependent upon, who we cling to in the times of need. And this, this text is all about that. It is probably one of the greater abused texts by some of our friends in the charismatic world. But it is a text that is, to, that is designed for us to study to increase our faith in God and not in ourselves. And we will be reminded over and over in this that when you try to stand on your own, you will fail. You will sink like Peter did on that ocean uh, surface when you try to trust in yourself. Tim Keller recently said this. He says, what you, put, uh, what you put your trust or faith in is the primary difference between believers and non-believers. It really is. What you put your faith in describes whether you are a believer 
or an unbeliever? Is your faith in Christ? I love what Peter did. He was certainly at this event that we're going to study today. He walked with Christ for those three years, went on to be one of the apostles and the main preacher to the birth of the church. But later in his life, as he was writing to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he begins to express great gratitude to the church. And what he expressed his, his gratitude to the church was around this, that they had faith even though they had not seen a resurrected Christ. You know this verse, it reads this way. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Peter was rejoicing. He was there when Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 29 to Thomas, Hey, it's great that you believe now seeing me, but blessed are those who will believe. He's speaking of you and me who have never seen. We live a life of faith. That's what we do. And when you think about all that we believe, this is the mark of a Christian. Christians walk by faith, not by sight. When you walk by sight, you sink. <laughs> it's really true when you think about it. We are marked by men and women, boys and girls, who walk by faith. We believe in a Christ we have not seen. We believe in a heavenly Father that loves us whom we've not seen. We believe in an indwelling spirit that we cannot see. We believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, that we never witnessed that. And yet we believe. We believe in a justifying work of Christ that takes place spiritually, that sets us apart and declares us to be righteous. And though we receive the results of that, we believe in a spiritual work, an internal work that God indefinitely challenges our souls. We believe that God progresses us in a growing nature, growing in His work of grace in our lives. We believe in an inspired and errant word of God through faith. And we believe in a heaven and hell that all comes by faith. We believe that God has given us faith. Because none of that is accomplished on your own strength. And when you and I live by our own strengths, we sink. Living by sight, I, I wrote this in my notes, let's see if I can get it right. Living by sight in this life will cause you to wish you lived by faith in the next life. <laughs> whether heaven or hell you'll wish you lived by faith because in the next life you live by sight there's Jesus Christ or there's condemnation for the rest of your life so this life God asked us to live by faith and this is the challenge of this text as we think about the context as we move back in this we've been away from Mark for a few weeks now but as we move back here Christ's earthly ministry is winding down He's all but done. He's now turning to instruction and preparing his disciples to live by sight now. They had been firsthand witnesses of his preaching and his teaching and his miraculous work. They'd watched that happen for these two and a half years. But now Jesus is going to say, hey, you have to live by faith. I'm leaving. And he will do this over and over until that resurrection happens, preparing them for the Christian life and their ability to be a model to others. 
And these lessons, as we'll see in these coming chapters after this, we'll talk about suffering living by faith. Humility living by faith. It's the seriousness of sin. He'll deal with that, how we live by faith. He'll talk about marriage and divorce and children in the kingdom and wealth and serving the Lord as he prepares these disciples and ultimately prepares us to live by faith. Now, when you think about what's going on here, Peter and James and John have just been on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. It was our last time in the text. They're coming down off this mountain. They've been with Christ. They've seen him unveiled. They've seen his full glory as those, the full strength of the sun, as you remember that text. And the other disciples, these other nine were not there. And when this scene begins, as, as we look at this in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus hasn't been with these nine who are down in the valley. <laughs> and guess who's down in the valley with them? Satan and his minions. <laughs> they love to work on people who aren't next to Christ. And they're there and they're at work. There's such a contrast that happens and. Mark details this uh, more than any of the two other Gospels that record this. But there's a contrast. On the mountain, they see the glory of God. They, they see Him unveiled and, and who He is and his, his full deity. In the valley, there's suffering going on. And I think Mark's doing a great job showing uh, the contrast here. On the mountain of transfiguration, God's there. He's speaking the triune God is evident on there. Down in the valley, Satan has his way. On the mountain, there was a great peace as they saw the Lord. They're ready to set tabernacles, booths up. They're ready to worship. They're, they're, they're actually almost in a, in a state of uh, uh, sedation as he tries to wake them in that peaceful moment. Down in the valley, there's arguing going on. There's religious leaders and, and the other nine arguing and fighting. On the mountain of transfiguration, the Father is pleased with the Son. But down in the valley, as we look at this text, there's an earthly father suffering greatly as his son is indwelled by a demon. Up on the mountain, there's a perfect son revealed to the three disciples. Down in the valley, there's a tormented son. Up on the mountain, the disciples were in awe. Down in the valley, there's a family in absolute distress of what's going on with their child. What an amazing set of events. And, and as we look at this, we want to ask the question, how will Jesus lead all of these involved to a greater understanding of Him, a greater appreciation, and a stronger faith? Let me give you a couple of thoughts this morning. Number one, doing battle on Satan's turf. Doing battle on Satan's turf. When, when Satan offered the kingdoms of the world to the Lord Jesus Christ, that was not a lie. Do you know that he owns the kingdoms of these world? They are his, and the kingdoms are his subjects. And so when we think about our time on this earth, when we choose to walk not with Christ in a daily way, we end up trying to do battle on Satan's turf alone. And that's exactly what's taking place. There's some interesting parallels when you study this. After the transfiguration, Jesus returns to the nine, and, and there's problems down there. You will see this. They're arguing. They're fighting. There's, there's a family in desperate need. There's chaos going on. Remember when Moses was on the mountain in Mount Sinai? 
He's up there with God for 40 days. What an amazing worship service that must have been as God reveals the, his will and the commandments for the nation and the direction of the nation. And he comes down and there's chaos. <laughs> there's men and women falling down before a golden calf and there's, there's just a mess going on. And it's, there's some similar, similarities to this. There's a large crowd that's now looking for Jesus. There's chaos going. The disciples were not strong enough to handle this mob. And plus there's these scribes you'll see in verse 14 that, that are on a full court press trying to cause difficulties and, and religious confusion. Look at verse 14 with me. When they came back down to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. You can see this. The nine are overmatched on Satan's turf. And their lacking faith needed to require to handle the situation. And speaking um, from our faith would give us grace in our conversation. When we think about that and you think about what's going on here, there's an argument going on and they're, they're somehow trying to deal with this situation. Doubtless it's about the healing of this boy. They're trying to deal with this on their own strength and what they're down to is just arguing. Their faith hasn't led them to speak of the power of Christ and grace. And so there's a battle going on. And the disciples were way outmatched. Notice verse 15. Immediately when the crowd saw him, that's Jesus, they were amazed and began to run to greet him. There's a quick departure from this chaotic scene of religious leaders and the disciples. And they, they run to Jesus. And that's interesting. They've been looking for him. And they're probably looking for him for all the wrong reasons in most cases. But there's something about him. And is it possible they run to him because there's a reflection in him, maybe? I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us completely here, but it uses a couple of words here. Notice it says in verse 15, they were amazed. And it's an interesting word. It's not the general word we would find for amazed there. It's a word of dis, uh, uh, of. Uh, disarmed, uh, alarmed, and, and uh, disturbed, and, uh, and astonished. So, so they see Jesus, they run to him, they know that he maybe can heal this child that, that these, these arguing scribes and these nine disciples can't. And yet there's this almost awe and fear that they come before him. Do you remember when Moses came off the mountain, that they made him wear a veil? They were afraid to be in his presence because he was reflecting God. And, and I don't know if that was happening here. Jesus had already warned the disciples to tell no one. But I can't imagine what the disciples looked like. At worst case scenario, they had a good tan. You know, from the, the Bible says that Jesus shone like the full strength of the sun. And so there must have been something striking about them. And so this whole scene turns away from this argument that's going on. And everything runs to the amazement of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 16. And he, Jesus, asked them, what are you discussing with them? What are you discussing with them? I love this verse. <laughs> and the reason I love this verse is Jesus is coming to rescue his disciples. He, he uses the word discuss, discussing here. We put it in English here. But really has a strong understanding of why are you arguing? Why are you debating with these men? What are you caught up into? And the scribes nor his disciples seemed to respond to the question at all. And probably because neither of them could heal him. Maybe this man had been to the scribes. Doubtless this was a Jewish situation. They had come to the religious leaders of, of the synagogue and the religious leaders of the nation. And they could do nothing for this boy. 
They had no authority with their works-based relationship with God to take care of this demonic being that is in this boy. And yet at the same time, the disciples can't handle him either. And so Jesus comes up and says, hey, what's going on here? And he pulls the attention to them, and he's now starting to turn the tables. At this point, Satan has winning. He's, he's taken the first round here, but now the Lord Jesus Christ has showed up. And both groups are relying on, on what Christ is going to do. They've tried to rely on their own strength, but now Christ is here. And everyone under, underestimates Christ in this. Look at verse 17 and 18. One of the, one of, and one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a demon, which makes him mute. And whenever it sees him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Well, during this moment of awkward silence that's going on here, Jesus has asked the question, what are you discussing? And, and nobody seems to be talking because they failed at trying to deal with this situation. But out of the middle of that, this father cries out of this crowd. You could see this scene. There's almost a sheepishness from his disciples and these scribes. What's going on here? Well, we failed completely, but we don't want to say anything. And in the middle of this, his father, who is suffering greatly as he's watched his son torment it for years, cries out and says, I need help. Matthew account, chapter 17, verse 14, says that the father fell before Jesus. Hmm, that's a good start. I need something you have. Luke chapter 9, verse 38 says it's his only son. And I think what's happening here, what God is doing is he's using this father to expose the plan of Satan. Satan's plan, as you look at this, is to destroy this boy. And he would have killed him if he could have. But God won't let him. It's also to destroy this family, any family who has lost a child that is very difficult. And if they're not standing on Christ, it's even more difficult. And so his goal is not only to destroy this boy, it's to destroy this family. His goal is also to destroy these disciples. He wants to prove that they can't do anything. That they weren't able to cast him out. And, and he also wants to cause great religious conflict. That's why I say Jesus is on the mountain. He's with the other three. He comes down. Satan's got the valley. <laughs> Christ's got the mountain. And now Christ is coming in to take over this because Satan is winning. Everything is in chaos. Problems galore. And the disciples were running on their own strength here. That's the only answer to this question. It's the only way we can say why they couldn't do it. They were running on their own strength to handle a very difficult situation. And Satan and his demons were winning, and they had control. Now, Satan's demons have always worked this way. If we study scriptures together, they they've mostly work in a very covert way. During the ministry of Jesus Christ, though, the gloves came off. Uh, we see more demonic activity than we've ever seen in this time. And they often hid themselves in people, and particularly hid themselves in children. This is the way Satan works. He is ruthless. There's no rules in Satan's turf. There's no rules in his book. He doesn't play fair. And he does this all the time. But that's what Jesus does. He comes in and rescues us from these, these terrible situations. And when you think about this, when, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to someone else. 
This is a difficult saying. You know, this doesn't get say, said a whole lot anymore. You either belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. There is no difference. There is no in-between. Can we prove that from the scriptures? You once belonged to the one who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, when he speaks of our salvation. And so Christ sees us in our own lives. He sees the stranglehold that the father of lies has on our lives. And he comes in and rescues. And that's what he's doing. Now, God's going to grant this father tremendous faith here. And he clearly, uh, he clearly, this father sees something different in Jesus. And, and he begins to explain the difficulties his son has. Look at verse 18. And whenever it, that's this demon, sees him, it slams him to the ground. This is very graphic, isn't it? And he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. If you've ever had to deal with somebody who goes through difficult seizures, you've seen this. But this is not just a seizure. This is, this is demonic activity. This is hatred towards God put into a little boy here. He goes on to say, I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, the father says, my son is a lunatic and he is very ill. That was his description of him. Now, we use that word kind of loosely in this day, but it was, this, man, this son of mine is out of his mind. And I can't help him. And you can see the plea of this father and the failure of the disciples to cast this demon out is somewhat disturbing. Christ had given them power. He'd sent them out by twos. We've already studied this text. And he gave them authority over demons and to preach Christ. And yet in this situation, they could not. And I thought about this. I said, Lord, this is like us today some days. We've been empowered by everything we need. The Bible says we have everything we need in life and godliness. And yet there's times we will step out into this life, go to work on Monday, and not take Christ with us in a sense. And we'll try to fight battles, we'll try to deal with sin in our life or sin in other people's lives, and we'll try to do it alone, and we will crash and burn. And I think that's what happened to the nine. They found themselves overmatched. They found themselves trying to handle things on their own strength. And I think every believer in here understands that thought. Because every one of us at times have tried to sola bootstrap this ourselves. We add a sola to the great five solas, meaning we're going to pull ourselves up by our, by our own boots and we're going we're to go through this life, we're going to deal with this situation on our own strength and we find ourselves struggling and I think there was a massive struggling going on here but Jesus knows this and I believe God has allowed this father to come and expose this and he's using all this situation because Jesus wants his disciples prepared for his departure look at verse 19 and he answered them and said oh unbelieving generation this is Jesus speaking here how long shall I be with you how long shall I put up with you Wow, what a statement. I think this is not aimed at the crowds. I don't think this is aimed at the scribes. You know who I think this is aimed at? His disciples. How long are you going to try to do things outside of me? How many times will you fall on your face and let sin and destruction take over you before you come to me? See, it's their failure to trust God. It's a failure to lean on the strength that Jesus alone gives. 
Notice the emotions of Christ's response. Notice that little O. Oh, it'll be in your Bible there. Uh, it, it, it's there to give you a, a strength of an imperative, of an emotional imperative. Oh, Jesus. He, there's, a, there's a yearning there for their lack of trust in him. Luke adds the term perverted generation. You go, well, that's a little harsh by Jesus to these 12 disciples. Well, think about walking with Christ, knowing his grace, and then going out and not trusting him. Think about what we hear as we sit here under the word of God and sing the type of songs we sing and have the fellowship we have, and then Monday morning go and try to tackle life not leaning on Christ. I would say that's perverted. So I think Luke's right. And I I looked at this and said, Lord, how perverted can a man be who knows you so in-depthly from studying your word and yet walk out in life and not trust you? Believer, is that you? Is that me? And so I think he's pointing to the disciples. They don't have any clue what's coming. They don't know that the church is going to be birthed in, in six months from now. Thousands of people are going to come to Christ. They're going to need shepherds and those who can point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are going to care for them. Those who are going to help them acknowledge their sin and repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are going to stand up against the government and religious rulers. They don't know that. But God does. And Christ is preparing these men. He says, how long? Notice he repeats it twice there. My hour's coming My death is near. I'm going to resurrect from the dead. I'm going to return to the Father. You're going to be on Satan's turf. The the church is going to be birthed. Are you ready to stand and walk with me? Or do you want to do this alone? Anybody been in the desert spiritually? I've been there. Probably saw you walking around out there. At a campfire together maybe a couple times. It's not good out there. We don't need to be out in the desert alone. And this is what God does. He takes these passages and reminds us that he has the strength. He gives us everything we need to do this. And he uses sharp verses like verse 19. Oh, unbelieving generation. And there are days believers act like what? Unbelievers. And all that Christ has done for us. So this can be true of us, can it? He says, how long have I been with you? How many of you have known Christ more than 10 years? How about 20? How about 30? How about 40? How about 50? I'm still seeing hands. How long have you been with Christ? See, it's a good question. Do I trust him? Do I, do I put my faith in him or is this an old hat? Well, yeah, I know the gospel. That's for when I got saved. Or do I walk with Jesus? Does he discipline the ones he loves? I I can't read verse 19 and think, there's some disciples with their heads down. I, I put my head down when I read this. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? This is not Jesus taking grace away. This is him reminding them that he has, they have great protection. Second thought, a faith that is desperate for Christ. Notice verse 19. 
at the very end, Jesus says, bring him to me. <laughs> it's a very intense imperative here in the, in the original language. Um, there's, there's a little bit of uh, intense or what maybe you could call holy irritation. Bring him to me. I want to show that you're not trusting me. I've given you the ability to deal with all things on this earth through my strength. So bring them to me. Christ has the power to get what he wants here. The Father knows what he wants. He knows Christ can do this. And Satan's going to get exactly what he doesn't want. And so the scene begins to unfold. Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. In response to the Lord's command, they, they bring the child. What else would you do? The king of glory says, bring him here. They do. Everybody reacts to the Lord Jesus. And this verse shows not only the physical struggle, but the spiritual struggle that goes on here. And I, I want to make this very clear. Satan hates submission to Christ, but he has to. <laughs> we see it all through the scriptures as he appears in front of Job. He has to submit to Christ. He has to submit to God. He always does. The demons fall but down before Christ in many examples in the Gardena tombs and so forth. What do we have to do with you? Don't throw us into the pit yet. It's not our time. They have to submit to the king of glory. But they do it full of hatred. They hate his word. They hate his word. Every time Jesus speaks to the demon-possessed people, out of it comes these voices from these demonic that hate his word. Is there a lesson there? Brothers and sisters, the world's not going to put up with the word of God much longer. And history repeats itself over and over. Persecution comes because they don't want to submit to God's word. Whether that's marriage, parenting, whatever. Whatever the hot topic is, out comes hatred. And we see that in this. Verse 21 Notice Jesus asked the father, how long has he been doing this? How long has this been happening to him? Isn't that interesting? While this dangerous display of this demonic hatred's happening, Jesus just calmly asks, well, how long has this been happening? I think I was there. I thought, Man, we're dialing 911. People are running and getting stuff. We're, I mean, if you've ever been around a medical emergency, you know, your blood pressure goes up a little bit. You're trying to figure out how to help this person. And Jesus is there. It's, it's incredible. But why is he, how is he like this? Because he knows all things. This child is not going to die. Satan's been trying to kill him since birth and hasn't succeeded yet. He's got control of this situation. And, and notice this is pure compassion he has on this family. He he's, has, strikes a conversation with this father. See, Jesus is not some unknown cosmic power. He's establishing a relationship with everyone the father draws. We ask this question all the time. Do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you not ask that question with people? See, Jesus Christ has a relationship with people. And what I love about this isn't, well, yeah, I'm just going to heal you to show everybody I have all this power. Hey, how long has this been happening? What do you want me to do? He's building this beautiful relationship with this man. Christ cares. 
and he cares for us and he always shows us mercy and grace in a personal way and everyone in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ could stand up and give a testimony today of what God, how God showed you grace this week, couldn't you probably? I, I hope so. Maybe it was saved from a car wreck. <laughs> Maybe it was a doctor's appointment. Maybe it was whatever. You can always say God showed his kindness to me and this is, this is what Jesus does to his children. And he's doing it right here. Notice the end of verse 21. He says, and he said, um, as he asked them how long this has been, the, the father said, from childhood. So there's this communication now going back. And then verse 22, and has often, now look what he begins to elaborate to Jesus. Jesus is now talking to him. He's standing in front of him. He has his attention. So he, he begins to pour out the concerns that he has to this, to this Savior who is standing in front of him. And he says, how often thrown him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Remember I said G, uh, Satan's goal was to kill this boy. That's where this came from. Satan's goal is destruction, death, separation. That's what he does. And this is desperate. And this father's desperate. And this family's desperate. And, and you think about this. Um, and I hope I don't step on too many nerves here. Even today in this 20th century world, when there is someone who struggles with something or has a special need in some way, even Christians often pull back from that situation. We're afraid to engage with someone maybe who is going through a difficult time or has some debilitating disease or some issue that God has allowed into their life. We are getting phrased, can you imagine what this is like in the first century? The Jews would look at this family and said, they're sinners and God has made this happen to them. He's punishing them. Other people would want nothing to do with this because they're unclean and we don't want to touch this person. And so you can imagine what this family has gone through. And yet, God had a bigger plan. You remember John chapter 9, I don't have time to run there, but you remember John chapter 9, blind men, um, disciples go, well, Lord, uh, why is this man blind? Did his father, did his parents sin or did he sin? Just a natural assumption. Which one is it? He says, neither. This has happened for the glory of God. What an amazing statement. And so true in all of our lives to remember that God still allows, even though we live in a fallen world and Christ has beaten sin, he still allows sin to direct us to himself. He takes us through difficulties, maybe difficulties to somebody else or something he's allowed to happen to our life to bring us to himself for his glory. And even though Satan and his forces repeatedly tried to kill this boy, they could not because God had a plan for this moment. Did you catch that? repeatedly the dad says "If tried to throw him into a fire and drowned him in the water. Couldn't kill him. Couldn't kill him because God had a plan. Verse 22 at the end. And here's the man. This is the father. You can see where he's at here. I think he's still running on human faith right now. And he says this, but if you can do something, take pity on us and help us. This is a desperate faith. It's not saving faith. It's desperate. He uses the word help, which is the, the Greek word has the idea of uh, running to the aid of somebody to help somebody in, in a desperate problem. I think his human faith here is weak. It lacks a supernatural power at this point. 
he seems to think that maybe Jesus can help him, but he's not sure he can. And that begins to come out of him. And I think that's what human faith does. Human faith falls short. I've told many a people when we talk about salvation, you cannot faith your way to God. Humanly faith your way to God. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. We have no spiritual pulse. The Bible's very clear we're dead. Dead people don't call 911. So we have no life to go call and faith our way to God. God must breathe life into us. But I think the same is true in daily faith. I think daily faith is something we must rely on the Lord. When's the last time you woke up in the morning and you said, Lord, help my unbelief? Because I'm going into a world of unbelievers. Our human faith always falls short. A.W. Pink said this. He said, the great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is the hope to discover, themsel- in, the hope to discover in themselves that which can be only found in Christ. It's a great mistake of us. We think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, get ourselves out of things, and there is no possibility of that outside of Christ. And we repeat it over and over and over till we suffer with consequences of that. And yet he's still gracious in that. Verse 23, Jesus' response is precious, isn't it? And Jesus said to him, if you can, he's quoting the man. I think that's fascinating to quote you if I can and then he says all things are possible to him who believes this is priceless and and this is not a question this is a rebuke to this man first of all everyone knew of his healing power I mean uh, the known world in this area knew of Jesus and what he was doing this is why the crowds were there this is what why they were coming after him but secondly and most important is the lesson about faith here. Jesus is wanting his disciples to increase their faith, to trust in God that he can do all things. He wants this crowd to see his disciples who are going to put their faith in him, who later will be the preachers to this crowd. He wants this father to realize that his human faith isn't enough. He needs God's help. And following Christ takes divine faith takes divine faith and that believe and that and believers have this all we have this faith in this all-powerful savior who can do all things according to his perfect will that's what he grants you at salvation and, and he continues to grant you that in life and that's why we preach and sing this is why we disciple people because i need to be reminded that my great god and savior has has all the strength i need because I'm fleshly, like you, and, and I hope I'm speaking for you as well, we tend to lean on our own strength. And he's going to prove it in the end of this passage by a lack of prayer in our life. And so he's teaching here, isn't he? And so disciples need faith. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 1. I want you to see this verse here. Peter, who would have been witnessing this amazing event. Writes this in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
Peter is not suggesting that we have this. He's making a clear statement, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I think life is salvation, godliness is the daily stuff. See, the disciples didn't believe that yet. They were, remember, they're operating on sight. They had, watched, they had watched Jesus do all this. They have to learn to operate by faith. And Peter says, look, we have given, given everything we need for both salvation and life, and notice where it comes, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's where it comes from. It comes through this excellence of God. It comes through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse four, for by these he has granted to us the precious and magnificent promises. And those lists go on and on. You can start with it. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll strengthen us. He'll take us through the deepest and darkest trials so that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature. You have the spirit of God within you that'll drive you to the scriptures and drive you to prayer in the most difficult times. And what do we do? What do we do? We complain, whine, and murmur at times. And yet God has strengthened us for this. Turn back to our text and notice verse 24. Things start to get a little unraveled here. And immediately the boar's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And, I, and so the verse 23, I think there's a desperate faith here. It's a human faith. It's a weak faith. But all of a sudden, verse 24, notice this, this incredible supernatural faith that cries out of this man. I do believe, help my unbelief. That's not of man. That's just not a man. That's God doing something unique. He's overcome by emotion, but more importantly, he's overcome by this God-given faith, and he cries out. And I believe what's happening here for God's own glory is God's granting this father faith. And he knew he could not muster up enough faith. He had seen all the healers. He had seen all the, the religious people. He had been in arguments with people. He knew he didn't have enough, and he needed this Christ to do what he could not do. And so he cried out, help my unbelief. What a statement. He was desperate. And God met him. And he gave him a gift of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God. The grace and faith given to us is a gift of God lest you would boast. Because if you think you faithed your way to God, you would boast in front of him and say, look, I chose you. When in reality, you had no ability to choose God. And so here in this moment, you see God giving this man faith. And previous to this, he's going, well, if you can do it. And here he blurts out with a strength, as so many people who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ have said in great claims at times, Lord, save me. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody do that. They've got to that point where God just pushes through their humanity and says, oh, Lord, I need you. Will you save me? This miraculous faith is granted to this man. The father pleads for what he cannot do. He had no ability to get rid of this demon, and he had no ability to, to uh, gather up the faith taken to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a real dear friend who was a cowboy for a lot of years and grew up in conservative world, so often that means you're in church. He had heard all the stories. He'd heard the gospel. He could recite the gospel to you as well as any Christian I knew. But he said, I'm not in the faith. 
I don't know the Lord. I know the, the system. I know the words and all of that. But I have no relationship with your God. So one day he was out riding and God moved in his heart. And he got off his horse. He told me the story. He took his hat off, kneeled before his horse. And he said, God, if you're out there, if you're really this God of this gospel. And your son really came to die. You have to make me believe. He was saved in the next three months. I think maybe even there. <laughs> Who does that, right? <laughs> he knew all the terms and he knew all the Christianese. He had all that down, but yet his heart was still hard. And I think that's so true of so many people probably. Been raised in the church. It's a new thing for us in the, in the South being here. We're from California. There's nobody, you know, you're either a Christian or you're not out there, period. There's no gray areas out there. I think, I think here, as we've watched a little bit, I think a lot of people have gone to church. A lot of people have heard the message. Do they have a God-given faith? Did God save you or did you? I think you have to wrestle with that question. You begin to say, God, give me faith and be like this man. Maybe you're like this man and God's stirring your heart. Cry out, help my unbelief. And if you're saved, let's go a little bit of application here as well. If you're saved, maybe we need to be crying this out more often. Lord, I'm over my head in parenting. My marriage is not what you want. I don't honor you with my job or my finances. It's because I don't believe in you, God, in these hours, in these times, in these difficult places. Will you help my unbelief? Help my unbelief. Amazing things happen when we bend the knee to God. Three, faith grants us access to a merciful and all-powerful Savior. I want to move quickly here, but look at verse 25. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathered, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Well, the word's spreading, the crowd's growing. God's granted this man faith and, and, and his father has pleaded out for him. Jesus decides not to make the scene any bigger and, and now he wants to protect this family from any further embarrassment. This boy is writhing on the ground. It's, it's not a pleasant scene for anybody's family. And this all-powerful God, this all-powerful Savior, now at the end of his earthly ministry doesn't have anything to prove. He's already proved who he is. He's God Almighty, controls the waves and the wind and, and can heal all the, the diseases and cast out all the demons. At this time, he says, I want to make these disciples strong in their faith. And he heals this boy. And the king of creation rebukes this unclean spirit. Notice what he calls him in 25 there, you deaf and mute spirit. He is not talking to the boy. That's probably what people have said. That was a very, uh, very harsh term. Um, it's literally tra translate, you, you idiot. He's not talking about the boy. <laughs> he loves the boy. He loves the boy's father. He's talking about this demon. Uh, this is a strong word. You deaf and mute. You stupid is the idea. Spirit. Get out of him. And that spirit, you can see the battle that goes on. Verse 26. Notice what happens here. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, he came out. And this is the, the spiritual losing battle the spirit world has against Christ. They know they're going to the pit, said by the demonic legion. It is not our time. Have you come to throw us into the pit, into the abyss? They know what's going on, don't they? 
And yet they fight. But in the end up, they must submit. Look at 20, into 26. There, the boy became like a corpse. And everybody thought he was dead. See, the faithless think the boy is dead, but they don't know who they're dealing with. The giver of both spiritual life and physical life is standing among them. And Jesus, with all the confidence in the world, reaches down, picks up this exhausted, dirty boy that has burned through the years and half drowned and nobody would ever touch this little boy. He picks him up and he hands him to his father. What a merciful savior. See, he's not afraid of uncleanness. He knows that's a false teaching. He knows that he's the one that can make all people clean. Are you impressed with Christ? How loving and gentle he is and yet he wants us to put our faith in him. Fourth, prayer is a direct reflection of our God-given faith. And these verses wind this up and, and probably for us maybe some of the important ver- most important verses. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning in verse 28 and privately, not publicly, privately, why could we not drive it out? The disciples are frustrated. They've experienced success before. When they were sent out before, they cast out demons. Why was this a problem? They had also got themselves into a big argument that went public with these scribes. The whole thing was a mess. And what Christ has been doing is helping them understand you've been leaning on your own strength and that's why you failed miserably. You have a broken-hearted father who you couldn't help because you tried to do things on your own strength. And then Jesus' response is remarkable here. Verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. What Jesus is teaching the disciples here is that they must be depended upon a power greater than themselves. There are difficult things we handle in life. This happens to be a demonic situation, um, but it's teaching us that we're going to come against things that are so difficult, maybe things that nobody else can understand. And if you don't go to the one who knows all things, you will never solve that issue. And so he's teaching these things. William Cowper, the great poet and hymn writer of the 1700s turned preacher said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saints upon their knees. He knows that you are no longer going to rely on your strength. You're going to go to the one who can beat him. And he trembles at that. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's pushing his disciples to deeper faith which is expressed in prayer. And Christ wanted this experience. He wanted it etched in their minds and their hearts. He wanted his disciples to be men of prayer. He wanted their faith to be directed in how they spoke with God. And so he pushes them. And when you and I don't pray, brothers and sisters, when we don't pray, it exposes a lack of faith. Why would we tackle the things in our life and not pray about them? And yet we did. We do. How many, how many spent time with the Lord today? I mean, we just, life, and, and I know God knows us, and, and he's so patient and kind with us, but yet we tackle the most difficult things and never, never ask him for help sometimes. Isn't that amazing? So here, the Lord Jesus is driving them. Final thought here. 
This, is not, this verse is not a remedy of how to cast out demons through prayer. That's not what he's talking about. Follow, follow the context. These men are trying to do things on their own strength. It's a, it's, a, it's a teaching that God's word, increasing in understanding, increasing in prayer and trust in God, that's what we defend ourselves against Satan and the world and his forces. Jesus healed many people that didn't have any faith. The Bible says in Mark, he says he healed all that came to him. Most of them did not have a saving faith. But so he does this. This one is so important. It's one of the last healings we see. There's a few more, but one major one, and it's all built to prepare his disciples for living with the Lord Jesus. So what a valuable lesson on the necessity of living for Christ. You're gonna come against some hard things. Satan's in this world. He's at work. He's the father of lies. He's at work to this day. He's in work in government. He's in work in politics. He's at your work. How will you stand against him? Will you try by your own strength or will you trust the Lord? What a great message. Father, thank you for the reminder of Mark chapter 9. There's a temptation for us, Lord, us blood-bought children of your Father to try to do things on our own. We may even think sometimes, Christ, that you're not there and we have to handle things. We have relationship struggles. We have uh, work struggles. We have financial struggles. We have health struggles. And many times, Lord, we will look to the world system, we will, we will fuss and fight, and we will fail to come to you. So, Lord, I, I pray, and I think I'm praying for many in this room, that you would help us be men and women, boys and girls, who cling to this God-given faith, who trust you in the darkest hours. In fact, trust you in the light hours so we can go through the dark hours. And Lord, I pray that you would cause Riverbend Church to be a church that goes to its knees. Each and every one of us, that we would, we would come to you in prayer, that we would humble ourselves to a God who knows all things, who loves us, who has demonstrated his love, and we would pray. And we would ask you to help us. And Lord, we would even be humble enough to cry out, Lord, help our unbelief. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you never will leave us nor forsake us, even when we fail. And so, Lord, we pray that we would turn to you in repentance, if need be, and you would restore a right walk with you, Lord, and we would trust you and talk to you, and lean on you, Lord. You are not a crutch. You are all we have. So give us strength to do those things in your glorious name. Amen.